those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one another, or with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you now, and we do ask that you would encourage us, Lord, as we consider the gifts and the privileges and the responsibilities that you give to us, the church. We pray that you would be glorified in this time together. Lord, I decrease, be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, what a wonderful morning this has been. (laughs) To God be the glory. We are here and we are uh, able to open up his word together. and, And what a great privilege that is. A few weeks ago... I heard a sermon from a passage on Matthew, or from Matthew 23, where the Lord Jesus laments over Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, or, O Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. It sure did, for at least the time that I heard the sermon, uh, caused me to consider Israel's privileges. Uh, it might even have been said from the Lord Jesus, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your privileges, your privileges. The nation of Israel was given divine privileges from God. To her first, God sent his prophets to proclaim his word. To her first was given God's unique presence, specifically revealed in the tabernacle and then in the temple. It was said from uh, this, the word of God that the people would say and that the people should say, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. What great privileges Israel had. To Israel was given the wonderful promise of the gospel, first in the seed of the woman, and then God further revealed his plan to redeem men from bondage to sin as revelation continued. Many privileges that were afforded to Israel, but for all of her privileges, the Lord Jesus rebukes them. In saying in Matthew 23, 37, how often I wanted to gather your children the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Therefore, could be added to that phrase, behold, your house is being left desolate to you. 
Now, I know that there's a lot of debate concerning the last portion or the second part there, how often I wanted to gather you, but you were unwilling. We're not going to deal with that this morning. What we are going to discuss, though, is that Israel, for all of her privileges, for the gifts that God had given to her, the responsibility that was hers to hold these gifts and to share them with the nations, Israel, time after time, hardened her heart, refused to receive and embrace and to view her inheritances as gifts, undeserved gifts. Esau, Esau was much like Israel, wasn't he? Esau epitomized the heart posture of Israel. Zealous, passionate, but lacking knowledge and lacking faith. Willing to squander his inheritance for a bowl of stew. Israel also would squander her inheritance in order to satisfy her own passions. She undervalued all of her privileges. What a privileged people they were. And as I look and consider the church, we are also a privileged people, aren't we? We have been given great gifts and we also have been given great responsibilities. The Lord has taken the gospel to the nations and we have been benefactors of that gracious gift from God, taking the gospel to the nations. We have been grafted into the olive tree, as it were. We have been adopted as sons and daughters. We are heirs of the promise. Heirs of the promise of those who will share in the inheritance of Christ. What privileges? What privileges? We are the body of Christ, the scriptures say. We are stones who, when we gather together, we are the temple of God. Where the presence of God dwells. Uniquely. Specifically. What privileges? What privileges? He is our head. He is conforming us to his image. Christ is making us holy in preparation for his glorious return. We are the church. We are united to Christ, sealed by his spirit. Uh, When we heard and believed, we were sealed by his spirit. What privileges? What privileges? Uh, Through family worship, uh, one of the questions that we are discussing right now is, is uh, actually in our confession, is that it is one thing to hear. Everyone can hear. You can bring an unbeliever into the church today and they can hear the words that are coming out of my mouth. But only by the work of the Spirit will they believe. And, and there's a, a spiritual hearing there, then, isn't there? There's a hearing and believing. You can just hear. Everyone can hear. But by the work of the Spirit, one can hear and believe. And that you and I have believed. What privileges? What privileges? We have been given new hearts, cut to the core because of our sin, and yet softened 
by the love of God, so that we might believe and be justified. What privileges, what privileges. We have been united to Christ through baptism. We have publicly confessed Christ. We have been united to him in his life, in his death and resurrection, symbolized in the waters of baptism. You remember that day, don't you? If you think hard enough, you can still remember the the feeling of the temperature of the water. Baptism is the door through which we publicly enter the church, publicly enter the church. When we confess our sins, repented of our sins and placed our faith in Christ alone, we took those inward convictions. We took them with us into the waters of baptism where we publicly confess Christ, where we publicly confess our inward convictions. We were then recognized, weren't we? Recognized by visible members of the body of Christ. If you were in this church, they stood around and they watched you. They, they cheered you on. Just like when some of us were married and when we finally said our final our, I do, they, they threw rice or flowers or whatever they threw and they cheered you on because you publicly made a commitment to the one that you love. We have become members of the body of Christ and we are also members of the local church. Members of the local church where we submit to the teaching and oversight of elders who have been placed over us. Elders who have been gifted to us by our great shepherd. As members of the local church, we are we are accountable not only to the elders, but to one another. As members, we practice love and charity, hospitality, patience, kindness, gentleness, and a host of other togethers or one another's. As we together long for, look toward that day when Christ will return for his bride. What privileges? What privileges? These are just a few of the privileges that we've been blessed with, gifted with by our by our God in Christ Jesus. We are we are truly a privileged people. We are a people who are divinely gifted by God. We are true Israel. We are true Israel. And it is, as it was Israel's responsibility, it is our responsibility to uphold these precious gifts and privileges and and not hoard them to ourselves, but, but share them with one another and with others. And so this morning, I would like to uh, just walk through seven reminders with you. They are reminders. They are things that we all know, uh, things that that we should readily say, yes, I I already know these things. But it's helpful, isn't it, every now and then to be reminded of things that, that we already know. This morning, I'd like to remind us of our gifts, our privileges and our responsibilities that have been entrusted to us by God. And I do pray that these reminders would be helpful and that they would be a blessing to you and encouragement to you. So let us consider them once again. Number one, these will all begin with uh, the same way. It is our gift, our privilege and our responsibility to be dedicated to worship, to be dedicated to worship. 
This is found in Acts 2, 41-47, really throughout all of the scriptures, but the text that we have already read. Uh, these people, they have confessed, repented, and placed their faith in Christ. They have been baptized. Uh, they believe, I believe, they were joined to a local church. They are a part of the number. The Bible says in Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Brothers and sisters, what did they do? If we were to sum up teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper and prayer, we could say this, the church was devoting themselves to worship. The church was devoting themselves to worship. Hearing God's word, brothers and sisters, is worship. Taking the Lord's Supper, which we will do, it's worship. Prayer is worship. These are the ordinary means of grace through which God blesses his people when they gather for worship. Worship is not just when we sing. Worship is all that we do. The entirety of worship is worship. When the, the pastor, the pastors pray their prayer of invocation. That's worship. When we read from God's word, the law and the gospel, that is worship. And we must respond with worship. We are walking through worship and we are engaging ourselves in worship. We are devoted to worship. It is our gift. It's our privilege. It's our responsibility to be devoted to worship. So we must be present for every aspect of worship. The church, baptized church, devoted to the word, to prayer, to fellowship with Christ at his table. They were devoted to worship. They committed themselves to gather with the church when the church gathered for for worship. On the day appointed by Christ, the Lord's day. At the time appointed by the church, the agreed upon time. So they, they committed to gather for worship on the day of worship, at the time of worship. As members of RBC, we have made the same commitments, haven't we? In our agreed constitution, we agree that we will commit ourselves to worship, to all that worship entails. We also agree to gather together during the stated meetings of the church on the Lord's Day at the time that we have all agreed upon. And we count this as a gift from God. What privileges, what privileges that we would be called by God, united to a church, and that we would be able to gather as recognized members of that local body to worship each time the doors are open. What privileges? What privileges? I wonder if if you would or if you could with me for just a moment consider just how wonderful it is to be called into the family of God. Amen. Chosen from before the foundation of the world. Pause. To be united to Christ. Pause. Or Selah. To bear his name. Selah. That means pause and worship. 
Is that not absolutely wonderful? The Apostle John marveled at this astonishing fact saying, this, this is love. Oh, another version, I think it's the, the King James Version says, Oh, how he's loved us. Not that we have loved him, but that he has loved us. What privileges, what privileges. I, uh, we could say, maybe rightly, Oh, church, oh, church, what privileges, what privileges. How wonderful that he would display his great love for us on the cross. That Christ, the righteous one, would die for unrighteous ones. What a gift. That you would be given the gift, not only to know him, but as we've been learning lately, to be like him. We marvel at him, and rightly so. And now he is conforming us to him, making us like him. Paul would say, oh, the depths, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. It does not make sense. How unsearchable, how unfathomable are his ways. It seems not so very, very good. What a gift that we have from our God. How wonderful he is. What a gift that it is to be known by the Lord, loved by the Lord, chosen by the Lord, conformed to the Lord, and one day glorified by the Lord. It is truly a privilege then to come and to worship him. Are those things in our minds as we are preparing for worship? I have been known, loved, chosen, conformed. I will be glorified one day. Oh, dear saints, I pray that that be fuel for your soul when you are preparing, not in the morning at 9.30 for worship, but throughout the week. And on Saturday as you are preparing your day, for the next day, that fuel for your desire to worship would be, I am known by God. I have been foreknown by God. I am loved by God, chosen by God. I am right now being conformed to God. And I will one day be glorified with God one day. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Our gathering is unlike any other gathering. It's not like any other gathering at a game or a fight or a birthday party or any other gathering. Those are celebrations of men. Those are exalting men at this time. It's not like any other time we have gathered for worship and to worship God. The one who knew you, loved you, chose you, is conforming you and will one day glorify you. Who else? Who else receives? Who else should receive praise and glory and honor if not our God? We join our voices for worship to God. Again, we are being conformed by God. We are given this gift of grace. Brothers and sisters, no other gathering compares. No other gathering compares. 
We must be devoted to worship. This will be our longest point, by the way. I think the most important one, too. Worship is persistence. We've got to keep doing it. It's perseverance. We have to do it week after week. Christ has designed the church this way. We are called to persist, to persevere in our devotion to worship Christ in the local church. My brothers and sisters, what privileges, what privileges that the church has on a regular basis to gather for worship and to enjoy the public means of grace. This is Christ's gift to his church, the gathering of the saints, and it is designed to be a great benefit for our souls. It is designed to nourish our souls when we gather for worship. Christ has provided for you and I a spiritual banquet every Lord's Day. So I encourage you, let nothing stop you from coming to feast and to be satisfied in Christ. Dear saints, praise God for the gift that he has given to us. Praise God for his privileges that he has given to us. Praise God for the responsibility that we have. And responsibility in this let nothing, allow nothing, no thing, no activity, no other opportunity to be more valuable, more important, more precious, more lasting than the gathering of the saints for worship. It's our gift, our privilege, and our responsibility. Secondly, same start, gift, privilege, and responsibility to submit to elders of the church. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. We're not going to turn to a whole bunch of scriptures but we're going to turn to a few. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. A, a verse that you all, I'm sure, are very familiar with. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse uh, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Brothers and sisters, it is our gift from Christ, our privilege as members of his body and this local church. It is our responsibility to submit to the elders of a local church. The elders are, listen to this, Christ's gift to the local church until Christ returns. Just like the church in the book of Acts. The members of the local church, they dedicate themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the whole counsel of God. As taught, as they are gifted to teach, so that they might grow in holiness and in Christ-likeness. And they are taught by the elders of the church. They devote themselves to this teaching. This teaching is the whole counsel of God. This teaching is from gifted men who are used by God to help us grow in holiness and grow in Christ likeness. They are the elders of the church, members of a local church. It is our gift, privilege, but it is also our responsibility to hold fast to their teachings. Members see elders as gifts and view being taught as being taught by them. As a privilege, it is the privilege of the members to be taught by their elders. It is their privilege. Your elders, here's why, because your elders have been given to you by Christ. 
our great shepherd, to help us grow in holiness and Christ likeness. Members of the local church are being fed by our great shepherd. Christ is feeding you. What is Christ feeding you? Christ is feeding you whatever the elders are feeding you. Because the elders are gifted by Christ to feed his sheep. Therefore, as different lessons and sermons and whatever else is going forth, it is not so much the person who is speaking to you as much as it is Christ using that person to speak to you. I, I do pray, I encourage you, not merely to see those who are uh, shepherding over you as only as being the only ones who are designing the word of God going forth. Meaning, it's not coming from our head. The elders, if they're faithful, are going to God's word. And in going to God's word, they are week after week reading and studying and listening and, and researching and thinking and even being consumed by text and doctrines. And they are praying. And all of this is preparation to feed the sheep of Christ. Those whom we have been given charge over. Your elders, and not just your elders, but elders, they should be working diligently. Not for worldly fame. Not for notoriety. But so that they might serve Christ and his sheep. So that you might be fed and eat well. And we do this, why? So that at the end of all of this, we might hear from our great shepherd, well done, good and faithful servant. There are only faithful men, brothers and sisters. Men of God, there are only faithful men of God. I say this with all sincerity. There are no great men of God. There are only faithful men of God. None of us are great. None of us are spectacular. None of us are no one. Christ is everyone. Christ is all. Only Christ is great. Only Christ deserves praise and glory. Christ is all in all. And he chooses feeble men, weak men. And we are all weak men. To proclaim his wonderful, glorious word. Only Christ is great. And he calls us men to be faithful. And that's the most that we can aspire to be, is faithful. It is our privilege, therefore, to hear the word of God. If all of these efforts are being taken by these men chosen by God, then it is our privilege. I must say this a hundred times, if you can hear it a hundred times in your head. It is therefore then our privilege to hear God's word. It is then our privilege to be nourished by the word of God that goes forth. And we must make every effort then to be attentive to the word of God. I don't want to be redundant. I don't want to be redundant. But if this is Christ's word speaking to us, then we must make every effort to be attentive to Christ's word. It is our gift from Christ, our privilege from Christ, but it is also our responsibility from Christ. Let us not be like Jerusalem. Those who killed the prophets. 
those who killed the ones who came with God's word and were faithful to proclaim it. Let us be those who, when the prophets, as it were, the preachers come forth in your local church, when they declare God's word, that our eyes are open, our 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 ears are alert, our minds are alert, our hearts are anticipating. Let us do whatever we must do to ensure that when God's word goes forth, no matter who is preaching, that we can say like Samuel, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So much more could be said about this point, but let's move on to our third point. It is our gift, privilege and responsibility to receive and affirm new members. As members of the church, it is our gift, privilege and responsibility to receive new members. What does the church do? The church receives and affirms new members. According to Matthew 16, where Christ states that upon Peter's confession, he would build his church. And that one would be bound or loose based upon the confession of that confessor. Also, Matthew chapter 18, where Christ describes how the identifiable members of the church must deal with sin. We'll get to that maybe in our next point, I think. Church, we were all looking for keys this morning. Church, you have the keys of the kingdom. Christ has given it to you. It's not Peter's. It's Peter's confession. Christ has given to you the keys of the kingdom. You have been charged with the gift, privilege, and responsibility of affirming or denying one's confession of faith. That may sound very strange for some, not if you're a member here, but based upon a true confession, the church determines whether or not they will accept or deny the veracity of the confessor's confession. Is it true? I'm hearing your testimony of faith. Is it in concert with the gospel? Or are there hints of it maybe not being the gospel? You, brothers and sisters, you've been given a key. And based upon that confession, you have been given the responsibility to either open the key to the gate of the kingdom of heaven and say, yes, Based upon that confession, you are welcome into the kingdom. We recognize you. We recognize that confession as being a true confession of the gospel. It's what true believers say. Please come in. And the opposite is true. If you hear a confession, you hear a testimony that is not in concert with the gospel, then you take those keys and you say you are not allowed in. That is not the gospel. That is not what the church has confessed. It is your responsibility. Also your gift. That God would entrust that to you. That God would give you such a privilege. Is that not wonderful? The elders, we play an important role in this process. We play the, play, play the role of guiding. It's leading, if you will. The church, the rules. The process is ultimately determined by the church collective. Collectively, the church determines, based upon the confession, whether or not the confessor has confessed a true confession. Matthew 16, Matthew 18 is where this responsibility is received and given to us. A few more, but one at least is Acts chapter 2, 37 and 47. You don't need to turn there. We see the church received a certain number. The church is receiving a certain number 
into the church. As confessors come to this church, this one here, and seek membership, they seek to be added to the number. It is important for us that we take note of them. Do we see fruit coming out of their lives? Are they people that as we observe them, we see they seem to be showing or displaying fruits of the Spirit? They seem to be people by all external evidences that truly have been transformed by Christ. We judge their practice, but we also judge their faith. Insofar as we can see, right? We see the outside fruit, and then we judge the inside that comes out. Tell us, what do you confess? Tell us, what do you believe about the gospel? And then we make a decision. The elders do not have the keys of the kingdom. It's not theirs. The elders do not have the right to decide who they will or will not add into the church. The keys of the kingdom have not been given to the elders. They've been given to the church. And the church must exercise this gift, this privilege and responsibility. Oh, what privileges, what privileges you have. Elders do not have the sole right to announce to the church, this is so-and-so. They are now a member of your church. The church has the right to do this, and the elders are a part of that process. Lord willing, uh, maybe at our next members' meeting, we'll be able to once again put that into practice. If the whole church decides who it is that is included into the church, the whole church also decides who is excluded from the church. See how they both go both ways. The church decides who is included. The church also decides who is excluded. This is also your gift, privilege, and responsibility. A big one. We must protect the purity of the church. We must protect the purity of the church so that unbelievers, though sometimes they sneak in, they don't find it easy to find their way throughout the church and to pollute the church. They might sneak in. We have some fences that have been set up, praise be to God. And if they get past all those fences, it won't be long before they, the snake eventually gets caught. But it is our responsibility to be discerning so that we might protect the purity of the church. It is your privilege, dear saints, to be given this, these keys of authority. It is your privilege, your gift, your responsibility. Christ has entrusted the keys to you. I don't know about you, but I, I can remember the first time keys were handed to me from a car. I was 15 years old. I was way too young to have those keys, but they were given to me. I can remember the, the sense of, of awe that I felt having those keys in my hand. Christ has given to you keys. They are, they are keys that are greater than any car, greater than any building. They are keys of the kingdom of God. They're yours. What privileges, what privileges. It is your responsibility, brothers and sisters, but not just for members, also for officers as well, which we'll get to after this next point. It is your fourth gift, privilege, and responsibility of the church to participate in church discipline. Oh, what a, what a difficult thing to say. But it is your gift. It is your privilege and responsibility to participate 
in discipline of the local church. I know this is difficult. It is. It sounds very strange to say, what a privilege that I could participate in church discipline. What a gift that I could participate in church discipline. I think we would, might even take this to the last point. It is your responsibility. As hard as it is, it's never fun. But as hard as it is, it is our responsibility to participate in church discipline. If someone sins against you, what do you do? You go to that person and you share with them how they have offended you. This is in Matthew chapter 18, by the way. If that person will not listen to you, meaning they will not repent, then you take two witnesses with you, two or three, and you call that person to repent. If that person still will not repent, then you take it to the elders. And you share with the elders the offense that has been been made. And if with the witnesses, with the elders, this person still will not repent, the final step is to take this offense to the church. If the person will not repent with the witnesses, with the elders, and with the church collective, then the final step is to, from the judgment of the church, excommunicate this person. They were they are to be excluded from the body. The church affirms, uh, gives the authority in this final step. Never fun. Very sad. But every step of the way is intending to to save. You go to the person. Brother, you've sinned against me. You're calling them back. They won't come. You bring a witness with you. Brother, we want you, sister, we want you to come back. They still won't come. You're trying to win. You bring the elders. Brother, sister, please come back. Turn from this sin. You bring it to the church. There are four fences at least. Intending to rescue. Intending to restore. So when we talk about the church discipline, it's never just straight to the axe. There are white flags being waved throughout the entire process. There's peace that is attempting to be made throughout the entire process. Please don't go this route. The church has been entrusted with the authority to make a final decision. One may say, I want to remove myself. Church, it is your responsibility to determine the biblical appropriateness of their deciding to remove themselves. If if the church is the one who affirms one person, then it is also the church who removes the one person. The one person doesn't get to say to him about himself or herself, I'm removing myself from you. That one person doesn't have the authority to do do that. Does that make sense? The person says, uh, and let me be very careful, the person says, I'm no longer going to be here. Well, you don't have the authority to do that. I no longer am a member. The church will determine whether or not you're still a member. The church will determine whether or not or what to do with this situation. What's the purpose of it? It's protection. What's the purpose of it? It's protection from who? From ourselves. We so often self-righteously judge ourselves. And we need we need people around us so that we so that we don't make those mistakes. We often 
at least in our own minds, are always right. We have at least the propensity, the uh, leaning toward seeing ourselves as being right all the time. And is it not a privilege? Is it not a gift that God has placed men and women around us of like faith, of common confession, who, when we are in error, can say to us, no, brothers and sisters, no, brother, no, you are actually wrong. It's for our safety. It is for our protection. I don't know if any of you have anybody like this in your life, but do you call anybody when you think that that maybe maybe you're unsure about a thing in your life? When you, when you would say, I'm calling you because I'm, I'm about to make a decision and I think I could be wrong. Maybe I'm right, but, but I would like some feedback and I'm not calling you just so that you can tell me that I'm right. You know people like that where when they call you, they just want you to, to co-sign what they're, what they're going to do. They don't necessarily want your advice. They just want you to say, yes, you're right. And if you say, no, you're wrong, they say, well, well, who asked you anyways? <laughs> we should have people like that in our lives. Guess what, brothers and sisters? We do. Look around you. It's the church. The church has been called to admonish one another, to correct one another. And we must be open to those corrections. We must be open if we are the people of God, if we are not going to be rogues, if we're not going to be many popes of our own lives. Then we must be people who say, am I wrong? And if I am, I will receive your correction because I know that I don't I'm not right about everything. That's a good, very good spiritual practice, brothers and sisters. Do we do it often? Do I do it often? (laughs) No, I don't. But we need to. Paul says the same in Galatians chapter 1. The point is this. That when we are in the midst of church discipline, every step of the way, our, our purpose, our desire is to win our brother back. Every step... Every process is to restore that brother, sister, to call them back to the right way. That we're not trying to triumph. We're not trying to say, look, I won the argument. We want to rejoice in seeing sin repented. We want to help. We want to rescue from Satan. Do you know what the final step of excommunication is? Turn that person over to Satan. I don't know about you, but someone who I have called brother or sister, the last thing I want to see them do is be in the hands of Satan. It is our then responsibility. Go after them. Do not let them be in the clutches of Satan. Go after them. Bring them back where they belong. And there are cases when they go out from us. Because they were never of us. There are cases. And I pray that there will be very, very few cases like that. The church is the bride of Christ. It is our goal, responsibility, gift and privilege to protect the purity of the church. The purity of the profession of the church. She is the bride of Christ. The bride for which, for whom Christ has given himself up for and died. He has loved us in order to make us blameless and to present us to himself. 
a purified bride. That is us. We are to be holy and pure, fitting of the call and love of our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that if we as a church permit unrepentant sin, then we destroy the purity and the profession of our church. If we allow sin to continue in our church, then we destroy the purity and the profession of our church. Jesus has called us to turn from our sin, to fight against our sin. And where we do not see fighting and struggling against sin, we destroy the purity of our confession. We must not do that. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20 says, For those who persist in sin, rebuke them. Listen to this. In the presence of all. So that the rest may stand in fear. Paul is giving instructions to Timothy concerning those who are in sin and how sin is to be addressed. Paul says, address it in the presence of all. That is, as you gather, when you gather, address sin so that all might stand in fear. Meaning that we might be very leery when it comes to going the direction of sin. We must treat sin, brothers and sisters, as a deadly disease in the church. That has no place. That has no place. Again, the goal of church discipline is restoration. It's rescuing. It is so that the church may be pure and unified. Brothers and sisters, what a privilege, what a joy, what a responsibility. Number five, it is our gift, privilege, and responsibility to elect New elders and new deacons. Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 6. You can go back and read that later. They chose, the scriptures say, a new deacon. Who it is, who is it, uh, who is the they of that passage in Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 6? They are not the elders. It's not the elders who are making this choice, but it is the number who has gathered. The number who has gathered is making this choice of deacons. The elders, they guide and they govern that process. But it is the church that ultimately decides. You received a letter this past weekend, an email, concerning uh, a recommendation, a desire to train a new deacon. Read through that email if you haven't. The elders do not have the, the, the right to say, this is your new deacon. Rather, we come to you and say, we would like to recommend this man for deacon. And we would like to train him for that office. We are asking for your permission. The Lord Jesus has given this responsibility to you. And no one can take it away from you. It is yours. The elders do not have the power or authority to declare, here's your new deacon, here's your new elder. The church has been gifted with that privilege and responsibility. To call and elect officers and again elders guide in that process. There are many churches that are led not by officers, not by elders and deacons, that are led by boards. We don't believe the local church should be run by a board. Here's what boards do. They interview, they hire, and they fire officers of the church. The new pastor of the church hired 
introduced to the church as the new overseer. He's not really an overseer. The board is the overseer. The pastor is just someone who preaches the word. But he's not actually an overseer. Brothers and sisters, that's the way many churches operate. And it's a secular way of running the church. It's not the biblical way of running the church. What about elders? Acts 14.23. Doesn't Paul tell the elders to ordain, uh, or tell Timothy to ordain elders in every city? Isn't it then elders who appoint and ordain elders? It would appear that way when you read the text. Yet, we believe from our confession in, in Confession 26.3 that officers are chosen, listen to this, with the consent of the congregation by common suffrage of the church. Meaning this, common suffrage is by vote of the majority. And our confession actually uses Acts 14.23 as a proof text for how an officer in the church is chosen. The text simply reads this, if you haven't turned there. When they had appointed elders from them in every city. I'm sorry, every church. That's what the text says. And upon further investigation, the phrase, when they had appointed, actually is summed up in one Greek word. It's a Greek word that has been chopped up, but it's actually an entire phrase. Summarized in one Greek word. Now... I know that a lot of times when people, especially non-reformed people, hear us, they go, you guys always say you need to go to the Greek to understand something. Well, I understand that appeal, but in this case, it's actually true. If you get to the Greek, it simply means this. When they had appointed, it actually communicates this word, raising one's hand in deliberate assembly. So phrase it is actually, or the phrase when they had appointed is actually a Greek uh, phrase for meaning this, raising one's hand in a deliberate assembly. It's one word. So when we see this choosing, it's not a choosing of the elders from the elders, it's a choosing from the congregation. And the way the congregation voted or affirmed is by the raising of a hand. It would, it would be what we call today voting. When they had appointed for themselves or when there had been a deliberate process by which elders had been voted in and accepted by the congregation, elders, deacons were chosen. It's deliberation, it is. It's an assembly, not just one person or even a board making this decision for others. It's the church making this decision for the church. They are appointed through deliberation by process from the church. Elders, they play an important role in this. They will recommend, they will help the train, but only the church can receive and affirm new officers. Only the church. The Apostle Paul told Titus, you are involved in this process in every city, but not without the consent of the deliberate body, which is the body of Christ, the church. Elders guide and govern this process, but they cannot make any decisions without the consent of the church. You know this. It's the gift responsibility and privilege of membership think about this brothers and sisters in the book of acts it was the brethren who chose the apostles to replace or who chose an apostle to replace judas the apostles are selected deacons are selected elders are elected by the church as a gift 
and they are the privilege to have over them. And it is our responsibility. Church, you have the keys. It is your responsibility. Six, it is the gift, privilege, and responsibility to financially support the work of the gospel. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13 through 14. To financially support the work of the gospel. In Corinthians, Paul exhorts the church to financially support those who serve as elders over them. They are those who get their living from the gospel. That's what 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14. It is those who, who earn their living from the gospel. Paul says it is right to support them. Does one, uh, this, con- this contribution in support of the work of the ministry of the gospel, it's a gift for us to participate in. Uh, let me say it this way. To support those who minister to you, to financially support them, it is your gift, it is your privilege, and it is your responsibility, our responsibility. Uh, We are happy to give to those things that we consider to be valuable, aren't we? Things that we love, that we cherish, uh, we we are happy to give to those things. I do pray that above all, we estimate that the work of the ministry is the most valuable. We've been given the gift of grace. It is our privilege to know God. And he has enabled us in our minds to understand him. And he has placed men in our lives. Gifts they are. With this mind that is now able to understand He has placed men in our lives to then help us understand his word, to make sense of his word. It is therefore then our gift and privilege to support them, those who are helping us in our new minds to understand all that God has for us. Galatians 6, 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. We see in these verses that in the giving of offerings by the members of the church, there is not only a benefit for the minister who receives, but there's a benefit from those who give. Meaning this, when we comfortably support ministers, we enable them to watch over us, to bless us with the word of God. With a freedom that they would not otherwise have if they had to focus on working and making a living and then coming home after their work so that they might study and prepare so that they might feed the sheep of Christ. If we do not provide for the ministry of the word, we won't receive the good outcome. What's the good outcome? The ministry of the word. The good, the good outcome of the ministry of the word is the ministry of the word. If we do not provide for the ministry of the word, then we will not receive the fruit of the ministry of the word. Uh, one of the brothers this past week asked 
the elders, if we spend time listening to our own sermons so that we might be edified and encouraged. Our response was, our edification comes when we are preparing. Our being blessed by the word of God that, that we preach each week is, is, is being given to us as we have time to prepare. So in that three hours a night that your elders are studying for the word of God, that's when we are being edified. And then by the grace of God, we are able to come to you on the Lord's Day for about an hour or so and share with you all that we have been blessed with. And hopefully do it in a way that makes sense, but is at least faithful to God's word. When our elders, and I'm saying this, our elders, when our elders are afforded time because of the support of the church to focus on the ministry of the word, the church reaps the benefits of that labor. The church reaps the benefit of that labor. What one sows, another reaps. We sow into the ministry of the word and we we reap back the ministry of the word. If we do not sow, we run the risk of having a man stand before us who is underworked, undersupported, and undersupported means they are undervalued. And the ministry of the word is deemed undervalued. This will be of no benefit to the church. Dear ones, let, let me say this also. We might say, but I have so many other things that I need to pay for. I would ask you to evaluate what's most valuable. Some of us have subscriptions to different things on television. Some of us have memberships to certain places. Some of us have uh, different foods that we like to eat throughout the week. Let us ask ourselves seriously. What do we most value? Let us, I say us, aspire to free our elders from worldly labor so that they may devote themselves not to building an empire, not to building a corporation, but so that these men may devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I do not say this because I'm one of your elders. I say this because this is God's command from Scripture. But there will be a day when I will not be your elder. The Lord will return. Uh, I will. He will either come for me or I will go to him. There will be a day when there will be another man or other men standing behind this desk, should the Lord tarry. And it should be our aim. To ensure that the only job that man has or those men have is prayer and the ministry of the word. Because the church will benefit from that. The church will benefit from that. The Apostle Paul in the book of Corinthians uses the example of the oxen who tread the grain. He says, let them eat. The one who works, let him eat. Therefore, ministers of the gospel should be provided for by the gospel and those who are receiving it. Paul says that those who do not provide for ministers of the gospel, those who do not give to the church for the benefits that it provides, they deceive themselves and they mock God. How do they, how do they do, how do they, how do they mock God? Serious language to mock God. It's like this. 
mocking God would be standing in a field praying for growth without planting or watering in that field. That's mocking God. Do we believe God can make miracles? Of course. Of course God can make miracles. Of course God can do anything. But if you're standing there with a bucket of water and seeds, and we say, God, make this field grow, without putting a seed or water on the seed, then we are mocking God. It's like the atheist who says, if God is real, tell him to show up right now. That's mocking God. God has told us to work the ground, eat from it, but work it. It's mocking God to pray for the church to grow, to pray for provision for the church, to pray that the elders would be provided for. But hold the seed in the bucket in your hand and give nothing to it. We mock God if we ignore his commands and believe that he will still bless in spite of our disobedience. We also mock God if we say the church will be okay. I don't need to give. And listen, I know that we we all have different finances. This is true. But you know, and I know, what we are able to give. I was raised in a church that was not just legalistic when it came to giving. It was hyper-legalistic. I was speaking to one of the members the other day, and I said, I can't remember the last time I did any teaching on giving. I said, oh, I remember it was just before you came three years ago. Text from the church that I came from, they were used in support of giving, that were used in support of giving. They were abused and they were over-spiritualized. People from my background, there's a sense of great discomfort whenever we begin to talk about finances because of the, the way that it was abused in our past. Let me say this. One of the ways that people from my background tried to soften this teaching on on giving is is by saying things like. Give as you feel led. Or give as you feel whatever the Lord puts on your heart. And I say to you, there's nothing in scripture that supports that notion. Church, I came from the background I came from legalistic. Hyper legalistic but not wrong in the principle. God commands us to give. There can be a legalistic extreme and even hyper-legalistic extreme, but it's based upon a true principle. God commands us to give. Not give according to your feelings, not give how you feel, give as you, are, as you have prospered. As the Lord prospers you, give. All, it is your gift, All that we have has been given to us by God. What do you have that you have not been first given? There is nothing that we have not been given that we have not first received. All of it belongs to God. It would not only just be wise, but we would be obedient to give the first of our income. And yes, I, I am saying the tithe. The tithe of your, of your income. And if you are not, I will say to you, not because of anything other than this, I have seen that, that 
as I have been faithful in giving my tithe, God has been faithful in supporting and providing for me every step of the way. Not having everything I want, but bread for today. Shelter for today. It is our privilege, it is our gift, and it is our responsibility to give as a member of Christ's church. We are commanded to give of our first fruits with gratefulness to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is our responsibility. And I will say, without taking this to an unhealthy manner, uh, place, the giving requires faith, doesn't it? I know that I have certain things coming, bills coming. It also requires a little bit of discernment. Do I need these things in my life? Uh, I'll talk about my ours. Do I need Disney Plus? Do I need Hulu? Do I need all of these different uh, things that I can sit and watch and, and not read? Uh, there's, there's a whole whole direction we can go with all of these different things. Do I need all of these different things? What's most valuable to me in my life? And do I believe that God will provide? I, I, I do believe it takes great faith to give and that God blesses and provides for those who trust that he will. Let's go to our last point. And finally, it is our gift, privilege and responsibility to serve in the church. This is a short one. But in First Corinthians, we learn that the body of Christ has been given a diversity of gifts, talents, blessings, benefits and strengths. And they are all They are all talents that the Lord has given to us so that we might give them to the church. God graces us with gifts so that we might be a gift to the church. So that we might be those who the church looks at and says, I am so thankful that you are here. First John 318, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. This particular gift is one of the great ways. That we can love the church in service. How can you serve? And you all serve in so many varied ways. From serving the church with food, technological skills, teaching children as many of you do. Some of you with great hospitality. Some of you with great kindness. Some of you by your cleaning. Some of you by your giving cards and thank yous and reminders. A host of other gifts that you give to share the church, to serve in the church. They're not always acknowledged, but thank you for all the ways that you serve in this church. You are a gift to the elders. You are a gift to the members. You are a blessing to us. And we praise God for you. And aren't there many ways that we can think about that we can serve in the church? Aren't there many ways that you can think about for your brothers and sisters that you might say, how might I serve you? Is everything well in your life? Is there any way that I could meet a need? Is there maybe a time that I can call you to pray? Is there maybe a time that we can call each other and encourage each other in the faith? That's service. That's mutually uh, edifying and, and loving one another. These are all wonderful things that we can all do. It's your gift. It's your privilege. We often lament about not having enough Christian friends or people at work who are Christians. You've got a whole church full of them. Call them. Text them. We're not the best of friends. Do you need to be? 
We don't have everything in common. They don't like the same color of food as I do. You're both washed in the blood of Christ. Start there. We're not the same age. Good. You probably can teach each other something about each other in different generations. Do not let worldly uh, worldly commonalities or worldly things that you share be the reason why you are close. Christ is the reason why you are close. Christ is the reason why you're united. Start there. They don't know as much as I do. Well, then teach them. I don't know as much as they do. Learn from them. These are all wonderful ways in which we can grow in Christ. They get on my nerves. Be long-suffering. Be patient with them. Wasn't God patient with you? Yes. None of us are the perfect person. Hang around with the person that you like the most, and eventually they'll get on your nerves too. Ask my wife. She'll tell you that. I love this guy, but he needs to go to the other room sometimes. She's talking about me, of course, not my sons. Oh, our privileges, our privileges. And it is truly our privilege to be a part of a local church. This is what I think was the attitude of the church in, in Acts. That they looked around and said, wow, what a gift that we have that we are in. We are in Christ. What a privilege. Then they begin to learn about their responsibilities and see them not just as work, but as also privileges and gifts. And it is also our privilege and gift, isn't it, this morning, and responsibility. There are plenty more we can talk about to come to the Lord's table. It is our gift, as Pastor Isaiah has been teaching over the past few weeks wonderfully, that we would be invited to come to share and to fellowship with Christ at his table. That we would would be given such a privilege, a gift to take of the body, to take of the cup, to in a most mysterious way truly fellowship with our Christ. His body has truly been broken. His blood has truly been shed. And I pray that you have been growing in your knowledge and understanding of the the sheer weight of this moment of coming to his table. Brothers and sisters, let's pray.